lot of times brands or companies will hire diverse talent and that person, it feels like that what they want that person to do double duty. They want them to do the job that they've hired them to do, but they also want them to do the job of sort of being the ambassador for whatever group they belong to. And that is unfair to that person. Hello, hello all. Today we have a bonus episode in celebration of Martin Luther King Day. I take this opportunity to not just celebrate with you the power of diversity, which many of you know my work centers around, but how we can tactically make billion dollar moves by building inclusion and diversity as our lever of growth. To do so, I'm calling in an expert, my friend Sonia Thompson, host of the Inclusion Marketing Podcast, who has worked with brands from Johnson & Johnson to GSK, who weighs in on what it takes to actually build a productive diverse team, how messaging to a broader stakeholder and customer base helps you win, and why you shouldn't be tasking that one diverse team member with your diversity goals. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. Smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. I work with venture capitalists, uh, limited partner investors that are thinking hard about the way they are leading forward. Uh, Diversity, equity, inclusion is a big topic. And especially in times where the market feels a little bit tough, uh, you know, there's already, uh, I, I guess, a consensus that we are in a recession. And as with marketing, uh, oftentimes diversity, equity, inclusion becomes an afterthought. Right. And it shouldn't be. A lot of times people um, think about diversity, equity, and inclusion as a nice to do, as something that's like politically correct, as something that's an HR sort of initiative without necessarily realizing that it is a growth lever. Each brand is now sort of, as we think about are being in a recession, fighting tooth and nail for every customer that they get. And our customers that we're serving, the people that we're trying to reach with our products and services are increasingly becoming more and more diverse. If we look at Gen Mm -hmm. Z, for instance, they are the most diverse generation. And this is globally, right? Um, They have very different values in terms of um, their expectations of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. They have very different values in terms of their expectation of the brands in which they're buying from and engaging from in terms of how they're engaging with different communities. And whenever we talk about diversity, we're talking really about um, a number of different dimensions of diversity. It isn't just race or gender, um, or ethnicity. It also includes sexual orientation. Not to say that you have to decide that you're serving all of those, but it's important to be aware that the people that we're serving are different. And we're in a new day where people have the expectation that the brands um, that they're interacting with are going to acknowledge the differences that we have individually and 
meet and serve those differences. So going back to um, is diversity something that we can afford to put on the back burner? No, it's not, right? Because inclusion inclusive marketing and operating in an inclusive manner is really the future of marketing, right? It's the future of the way in which businesses operate. And those brands, those companies, um, those startups who are reluctant to sort of hop on board and embrace this are going to find themselves fighting the future and being forced to, unfortunately, um, they're going to be forced to do it later on. It's kind of like digital marketing, right? Um, there mm. were a lot of people, you know, maybe 10 years ago who were reluctant to get on board with like the digital train. Um, and then what happened? Like it didn't go away. It wasn't a trend. It wasn't a fad. It just became integrated into the way that we operate. And inclusion is fast approaching that same way. Yeah. And Sonia, you know, I, I think you're deep in the world of marketing and, and deep in the work of inclusive marketing. But of course, our audience uh, may not be as well versed as you, the expert. Can you tell us a little bit about when you think about inclusive marketing? What would you say are the three top tenets of what makes a marketing initiative or a marketing strategy truly inclusive? So inclusive marketing, and I alluded to this before, it's not necessarily about serving everybody. It's acknowledging that the people who have the problem that your business solves are different. It's being intentional about choosing which of those differences that you're going to serve and then incorporating that particular audience into in, in the differences or the needs that they have into um, everything that you're doing from a customer experience standpoint, from a marketing mix standpoint, thinking about the team that you're hiring, um, because you want them to be reflective. So first and foremost, you want to make sure that as you are defining who the people who are going to be using your products and services, as you're defining who they are, that you consider all the different ways in which they could be different. So for instance, if you have a product that you want to target to women, right? Um, how women aren't all the same, right? Um, does this mean, is this women of, you know, a certain age? Uh, does this include women who are married? Does this include women who have children? Does this include Muslim women or um, Jewish women? Understanding how people can be different then opens you up to figuring out, okay, based upon the differences that we want to serve, how can we then adjust different elements of the way in which we communicate, possibly even different elements of the product that we're building um, mm -hmm. so that they understand that we designed what it is that we're doing with them in mind. And they say, ah, oh, this brand really gets me. Um, they've taken the time to consider me and my unique needs. And because of that, not only am I going to buy from them, I'll probably buy from them again and again and again. And this is, um, and I'll tell my friends about them. So people who in particular are accustomed to being underserved or ignored by brands, whenever there is a brand that all of a sudden caters to their needs, sees them, um, then they tend to be quite loyal. <laughs> and we know, and loyal customer is what we all want.
Right. So, you know, this is uh, very relevant, I think, for a lot of uh, startup founders that tune in that are looking to scale, right? So we're not at the zero to one. A lot of our founders here are unicorns and are thinking one to 10 global expansion. And in fact, I had one founder on that was set on global expansion because, you know, it's empire building. It feels good for the ego. But she realized very quickly that she was not tuning in to what her customer actually wants and thought that, of course, you know, I'm a great entrepreneur, take my product. So when you think about, you know, building that customer persona, I mean, something you said that uh, really caught me in that you need to think about the people you're serving, but you can't do it in a too broad a fashion. So can you, I guess, dive into the detail of Say you're an entrepreneur, right? You're mm-hmm. thinking about global markets, global expansion. How do you do that in a way where it's not too broad, but not too narrow? One strategy that I love in terms of helping people think about expansion and making sure that you're specifically making the people that you want to serve feel like they belong is thinking about the niche consumer and using them as your lead consumer because you're going to get a spillover effect. Nike did this, for instance, whenever they designed a shoe where you can get a a tennis shoe where you can get into it and out of it hands-free, right? They designed it for the community who had physical disabilities where maybe they didn't have any hands, they didn't have access to their hands, um, they had some mobility issues. It was designed specifically for them with them in mind, but are they the only ones using the shoe? Not at all. There are plenty of people who through the course of their day find, and they found out even children like these types of shoes, right? Um, there's mm. utility. They designed it for one very small group of people, but it had much massive, um, more massive appeal because there were a lot of other people who were able to see, oh, this works for me in that instance. So going back to their founders, they it's not that they have to rack their brain and think about all these different resources that they're going to have to spend and invest. If they choose even just one dimension of diversity to focus on, go all in on that, they're going to find that they're going to be able to reach a much broader group of people because there's that spillover effect or, you know, just that one area um, and the utility of it will find that it expands your market significantly. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. I absolutely love that uh, slip-on shoes uh, example. And, and I think that that helps in framing things. Now, let's change tact a little bit. I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, we were chatting about was the previous episode that you tuned into on Billion Dollar Moves uh, with Paul Ark, who was a uh, you know a managing director of a hundred million uh, corporate venture capital fund in, in Thailand, one of the things that he talked about was his success factor in per- in producing a top performing CVC in fintech for its vintage was by hiring a diverse team and really focusing on bringing in the right people. And this is actually something that is very challenging for a lot of folks in my industry. I will say that. 
you know, in, in venture capital. Uh, till today, you know, the majority of venture firms still don't have female partners, female GPs, and we want to change that. But how do we go about it when we're starting from really a, a very hard starting point? So one of the things that I loved about the episode and specifically what he said, um, he talked about he was going to hire four people on his team and he knew that he wanted to hire two women and two men, right? So that's, he had gender parity immediately, right? In terms of the team that he was going to hire. And what I loved about it was the specificity that he had in what he wanted his team makeup to be, because he also talked about having um, senior people as well as junior people, because it was important to have that mix in experience um, because they were going to come from different perspectives. A lot of times when people are hiring or they're recruiting, they focus on the percentage of people that they're going to interview. Oh, we want to increase the number of women that we have on our team. So we're going to increase the number of women that we're going to interview. That doesn't necessarily mean that that means you're going to automatically increase the number of women that you hire. And I think it's a small distinction, but it, um, it's one that can make a big difference. Let's say you say, we're going to um, make sure that 50% of our candidate slate is women. Um, you could still hire all men <laughs> as a result of yeah. doing that, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to change the makeup of your team. And it kind of sets you up to tokenizing a little bit more in terms mm. of your overall process. Whereas like you're trying to um, get like just one person in on your team from diversification standpoint. But whenever you're clear upfront about who your team needs to have and the percentages or thinking about the customers that you're serving in terms of, are they um, 50% men, 50% women? Are they... Um, 20% Black? Are they 30% Latino? Whatever the numbers are, are they 20% Asian? Whatever the numbers are in the makeup, think about what your team looks like, what your customers look like, and the type of culture that you want to create. And then you can sort of say, all right, this is what my team needs. And you can go out and hire for it exactly the way that your guests did, where you know specifically, I need to hire this many women. I need to hire this many people who are of Asian descent. I need to hire this many people who are from whatever other dimension of diversity that you're looking for. And whenever you're thinking about it more of this is the makeup that I want my team to have and this is who I want to hire, it changes completely your recruitment process as well as the expectation and the culture that you're creating on your team as it relates to diversity, because it's showing how much you value having those different points of view and different perspectives. And then it's going beyond just saying diversity important to proving that diversity is important based upon who you're hiring. Sonia, if, if I can unpack that a little bit, you know, one you're saying essentially what we call the Rooney rule, right? We, we've brought on a yes. version of the Rooney rule to the investment uh, landscape as well. Uh, and it has worked with some success, not complete success, as, as you know. But when you say, you know, let's not only look at the top of the funnel, let's look at the end result. Um, hmm. What then else needs to change in the hiring process? So you mentioned the Rooney rule and that comes from like, 
I believe that comes from football here in the U.S., right? Yeah. The NFL. Mm-hmm. And the Rooney, let's be clear, the Rooney rule has not fundamentally changed the makeup of hiring of the diversity of the coaches in the U.S. Like it hasn't really worked to move the needle. So even though a lot of people have a, sort of adopted it and it sounds great in theory, it's more of making sure that, you know, going back to the overall recruitment process, if we need to hire a three women, right? If we need to hire three black women, whatever it is, whatever the makeup is, then it sort of forces you or it changes your thinking about where you go to find these groups of people. So instead of putting it up on a very specific job board um, where everyone can apply, right? Um, And there are times where that's necessary to do that. It might force you to go very specific to a women-specific professional organization. I went to an HBCU, a historically Black college and university in the U.S., Florida A&M. And whenever I finished business school, I went and worked for um, my, my corporate job based upon them coming on campus and specifically re- recruiting for Black talent. Why were they at my university specifically recruiting for b- Black talent? Of course, I feel like it was a great program, but they were fishing where the fish were, right? If they mm-hmm. knew that they needed a diverse talent, why wouldn't you go to an event or on-campus recruiting where there is an abundance of exactly what it is that you're looking for? One other thing yeah. to note on this that it help, could help you, a lot of times when people are hiring, especially when it comes to venture capital, smaller startups, um, et cetera, they're hiring based upon their network. Um, this happens in larger companies as well. The challenge is most people's networks are very homogenous. So if you are looking to diversify your team, but you've got a homogenous network, those things are incongruent, right? So it's important that we all, and this takes time, that we all focus on diversifying our networks because if you want to continue to hire in that way, you have to change something that will make it more likely that you'll be recommended someone from somebody in your network who knows these fantastic, you know, this great talent that that's available, but because they've got a diverse network and they've got access to a broader range of people versus you hiring the same type of person over and over and over again, because you've got this homogenous network. Oh, I love that. I mean, you are singing to my choir. Uh, <laughs> so things that you said that is number one, of course, Go to where your target, meet your customers where they are, meet your stakeholders where they are is point number one. Point number two is uh, don't underestimate your the power of your network and especially in venture capital. I mean, I know this from the work that we do uh, that, you know, there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of relationships uh, that actually brings people into the system. But of course, when you sort of work through that, there's biases and there's, yeah. you know, what does comfort look like? Right. So it's really challenging yourself to say, what do my networks actually look like and how can I expect to get these results if I don't change my construct of my own network in itself? Right. Right. And so as we think about just diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging, so much of it, I think people think of it at an organizational level, but there is a big part of it that's individual as well. Right. Um, because we can get rid of our own biases by the more we interact with and build relationships with people who are different from us. 
it just makes us better people overall. Um, but it also makes us better business people. And it has a number of benefits that trickle down into your perception, the way you view the world, the way you view different groups of people, the way you view the people that you serve, the way you operate or think about how you run your business and what works well and what doesn't. And in fact, Sonia, you know, I'm happy to share with you one of the big multi-billion venture funds that we work with, what they did was exactly that, right? They brought on, you know, they had, I want to say, one woman partner out of the many, and they brought on uh, one specifically to look at gender as a strategy, right? As Mm -hmm. a growth strategy. And from there, built out the team. And now they're fully ESG uh, focused as well uh, in developing returns and, and driving returns. And that all started with bringing in someone that was different from the status quo that they mm-hmm. uh, then were starting to see the deal flow change, right? The messaging into who their customers were, the stakeholders, i.e. the female founders, you know, that the, the message with the billion dollar fund for women is funds that sign up with this have the welcome mat. Uh, open for women. And with that, you know, we get excellent, excellent deal flow. Now I want to go a little bit further because now, um, because I've been doing this work for some time now, the challenge still, uh, doesn't end there, right? It's not enough to hire diverse teams. And in fact, one of the large financial firms I work with had shared with me confidentially that, Hey, you know, Sarah, we realized one of the mistakes that we made was we expected diversity from the diverse talent that we brought in, Mm -hmm. but it didn't always work out. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is? A lot of times brands or companies will hire diverse talent and that person, it feels like that what they want that person to do double duty. They want them to do the job that they've hired them to do, but they also want them to do the job of sort of being the ambassador for whatever group they belong to. So if you're the only woman on the team, they want you to be the person who signs off on, provides input on everything woman related. If you are the only person who's on um, the team who's LGBTQ+, it's like you are the spokesperson suddenly (laughs) for that group. And that is unfair to that person. One, because one person, of course, can't speak for an entire group. Um, and two, because, um, that's not their job unless they were hired for it specifically. So it's like you're treating them like an unpaid consultant because you're, you know, expecting them to weigh in on and provide input on things that might have anything to do with their job. And third, and quite possibly most importantly, if they weren't hired for that specific purpose or they don't have expertise in that particular area, they might not be able to speak to or probably won't be able to speak to credibly that entire group of people because that's not their area of expertise. Sure, they're, they're, you know, I'm a black woman and I have lived experiences that um, I could speak to and that I can offer up, but I cannot do that for black people in general. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, 
jujitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, talking too loud wherever you get your podcasts. Right? Like, and it shouldn't be an expectation. And because I have my own experiences, I have my own preferences, and that can be completely different from my sister, from somebody that I don't know, from, you know, the group of people who, you know, have completely different set of experiences um, that I do. I'm tainted by certain privileges that I have, whereas other people might not have those same ones. And it's just really unfair for that team member um, to kind of take on that role and responsibility and that challenge, especially if they weren't hired for that specifically, they don't have that area of expertise, or they weren't expecting that this would be a part of their job, right? So if they're brought on and then suddenly they're peppered with all these questions and expected to be sort of the face of whatever community they're a part of, it can then breed in a bit of resentment. And also it kind of makes the rest of your team feel as if they don't have to develop the degree of intimacy with the customer group that you're trying to serve. If you always go to Sarah to ask Sarah about um, the Asian market, because Sarah knows, you know, she's got some knowledge about it, then when are you ever going to learn about it on your own? When are you ever mm-hmm. going to build that bench and that competency on the rest of your team if you're constantly relying on Sarah or whatever the person in your office um, to be able to do that? So if yeah, you're I love that. Ser- serious about building a diverse team, and there are a number of studies that talk about diverse teams outperform their peers that aren't diverse, right, on a number of different areas. If you actually want to get the benefits of having a diverse team, you need to embed inclusion into the overall team culture. And it needs to be everyone's job, not just the one or two, quote unquote, diverse talent team members that you've got on the team. Yeah, so absolutely love this. I want to make this as practical as possible for all guests, right? Who are decision makers, who are building teams every day. So number one is, you know, you can't burden and expect a diverse talent to deliver diversity if it's not part of their job description. But how can we actually um, do it in a way that makes sense, right? If, you know, we do want to, like we said, top of the call, you know, we wanted to make sure that our team reflects the market that we serve or reflects the future that we want, right? In venture capital, I will say, we can't just say that, oh, there's not many women in, in AI and therefore we don't have to hire women. Right. This is where... Things, you know, it, it's sort of a flywheel effect and creates the reality that we have today, right? And that's right. why we're sort of forward looking. Uh, but how do we hire, retain, and create a culture of, like you said, accountability? And I think Paul said this in the call as well in his episode um, that it was necessary to have a culture which is unlike most Asian culture where it's very hierarchical, mm-hmm. where there was ability to debate. How, how do we build all of this? Yeah, you have to create an environment where psychological safety exists. Now, again, I want to I want to underscore the point of it's not like if you hire women, um we're not or if you hire, you know, have a diverse team that you're never asking people to weigh in on um their experiences, right? Um from the whatever community group. You do want them to speak up, but it's important to 
establish that from the beginning, even during the recruitment and the interview process. Mm -hmm. Again, not to say that you need to be the spokesman for this community, but hey, Sonia, as a black woman, and I'm acknowledging that you are a black woman, right? You're going to bring unique perspectives and um, points of view that we don't have on our team. So we would love it. We welcome your point of view for you to speak up whenever you have, you know, something that you feel like is valuable to add, when you have something to say, when you have a point of view that we're maybe not considering, that changes the tone and sets the stage where it's not like it's my responsibility for you to like constantly ask me to sign off on something, but you're welcoming me, welcoming me and um, letting me know that my voice, my point of view is valuable and that I should often speak up and um, I should speak up and let my voice be heard, especially whenever the team isn't necessarily considering something that they should. Setting that expectation from the interview process really sort of sets the stage for people to know that their point of view is valued. Um, so going back to what you just mentioned about culture and different cultures, not necessarily um, some being very hierarchical. So it's not necessarily the thing that people are accustomed or comfortable with doing, deviating from what, you know, somebody who's a higher up might have said or is different from what the group may be thinking. The more people see that differences in opinion are valued and can help make a better work environment and product, they will get more comfortable in, in doing that um, and speaking up. Yeah. And one of the things that actually we learned uh, in working with over 100 venture capital funds to drive returns through diversity, you know, invest more into women led companies is that, you know, we can do as many unconscious bias trainings, uh, subconscious, unconscious, whatever you call it these days. But what really moves the dial? is actually changing the processes, right? So something that uh, a good friend actually shared with me that has stuck with me throughout the work that I do is, you know, Sarah, you can hope to change personal biases, but every day challenge yourself and ask yourself, what are the systems and structures that you're holding in place because of beliefs that you've been brought up with, privilege you happen yeah. to uh, stumble into, right? And things like that. When you think about the companies that you've worked with, right? You've worked with like Fortune 50 companies and in diversifying their teams, their messaging and, and so many others. What do you think is most important when you think about the systems and structures that has existed to hold some communities back? I think it's important to acknowledge that Equity programs are important and knowing that their inequities exist, right? So if you first acknowledge that inequities exist, then you can work to do something about it, right? Through the systems that you have in place in your company and the policies. If you acknowledge that um, diversity, our diversity, equity, inclusion challenges aren't going to be fixed on their own, then you can then say, all right, well, what is it that we are able to do so that we're able as a company to move the needle forward um, and, and not expect for it to happen organically? Um, so going back to what we were talking about earlier about building a diverse team, that goes with looking at the makeup of your team, right? Acknowledging here are the goals and specific um uh, targets that we would have in terms of what we think our team should look like, 
based upon the customers we're serving, et cetera. Um, and then you can go back and adjust your recruitment process to then align with the end goal that you're trying to reach. Um, if you want to make sure that you are diversifying your user base, your customer base, start by thinking about what is the end goal that you want to get to and then think back to, all right, what are the processes that we need to have What um, that will um, enable us to support and get that way? Because a lot of times people have metrics, they have performance metrics that are contrary to a specific goal that they have. So that's why going back to the original discussion, it's important that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are embedded into your business strategy um, because then it's easier to hold people accountable, bake it into their performance metrics, bake it into your business metrics so that everything works together in supporting it rather than feeling like you're having to fight for resources, which is more important, which is not, which is a priority, which is not. Whenever it's all aligned, then you can adjust whatever policies that you might have in place internally to then support you getting to whatever this goal is that you've stated that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And, and I, I love that when you think about the goals that you're setting and how Oftentimes that can be, you know, you, you're expecting this, but you actually set it as this and, and that doesn't jive. When you've looked at some of these examples, what, what comes to mind? Um, so I think that there are sometimes, um, let's say we want to come to, we were talking about recruiting. So this is the one that's kind of popping up for me before, right now. We want to hire more diverse talent, but we're only going to these top 10 deemed schools that we've deemed mm. that the best talent comes from, right? We say that we've got these very specific, um, we want to build a more diverse team, but we haven't changed anything about the way that we source talent, right? So um, because we haven't changed the way we source talent, where we go, because we haven't looked at um, how we even interview people, Right. Um, you know, do we put these panels in place, um, where everyone in the panel has a very clear sort of focused idea in their mind about what good talent looks like? Right. Or what experiences they have to have that makes them, you know, sort of a good candidate for this position. If we put a goal in place, but haven't changed the way we think about what good looks like or what it has to be or anything about our process that makes it more inclusive of people who don't fit into the mold of what we've, you know, historically deemed as important, then we're going to continue to get the same result. Or if we do bring on some new talent, the culture that we've created isn't one that is conducive for them to be able to thrive and actually bring the benefit that you've created. Um, so it's more a matter of once you've defined this goal, then look at every step of the journey that you're going through to make sure that um, it is supporting what that goal is that you want. And it's not sort of perpetuating the same 
the more of the same that you've historically gone through, right? How are you interviewing them? How are you determining your degree of success? How are you writing your job descriptions? I read something that said that one word, I believe that there was one tech company, they were looking for engineers and they described the engineer that they were looking for as a ninja. Um, and because of that, um, I think they only received like 2% of women who were applying for the job. But whenever they like took that word ninja out, um, like yeah. immediately the number of candidates they got from women, specifically women shot up. And you wouldn't think that that word would make that big of a difference, but it did, right? Just because of the way people were thinking about what that role was, was it right for them? And so we have to be vigilant and thinking about every step of the process. Not to say they have to change everything right away, but know that there are a lot of contributing factors, systemic things that ha- exist within organizations that make a big difference in terms of the results that you're going to get. So whenever you get serious about saying, we want to achieve this goal, you're going to have to evaluate you know, every part of your process to make sure that it is supporting the outcomes that you want to reach. Yeah. Well, I hope this is an aha moment for many that are tuning in because I've heard this so many times by, you know, top decision makers, right? A CIO of a top endowment. And, and I think you know this, you know, the American endowments are a huge source of uh, funding actually for the venture capital industry. You know, they're multi-billion. You think about Yale, the Ivy Leagues and things like that. And they do have, you know, holdings in private equity of which uh, alternatives being venture capital is a, a leading source of their returns for many of them. Uh, touch wood so you know so far and uh, one of the things that they do do is hire from their own university itself right mm-hmm. so when they think about why are the LP so the limited partner investors that invest into the venture capital funds not as diverse is because of what you exactly said right how are they writing their job descriptions are they saying that they need to have had that Ivy League privilege and of course you know right. not everyone has that opportunity that de- but doesn't that doesn't make them lesser off the other thing that i like to um, bring as an example which is closer to our industry is you know when we evaluate venture capital funds the key thing that a lot of uh, lps ask for is the track record mm. right what's your 10 year track record in this industry what have you delivered but of course as you said this is like asking the intern who's looking for job experience right. or job experience. And right. that, you know, cancels out a huge population, which is where the opportunity lies. Right. And I think that sometimes people have this ill-conceived perception that there's only one way to prove or demonstrate your experience. And if we look at the digital world, um, for examples, it, for instance, the people that are getting hired, for instance, now, or the people who are getting results, they don't have an MBA with, you know, 10 years of experience, um, you know, doing X, Y, and Z, checking, you know, X number of boxes. They're the people who are like, have one to two years of experience, self-taught through trial and error. And they are mopping the floor with people who might have all that other traditional experience because they've got lived experience, real world experience that um, works for what is happening today. But we also need to acknowledge that our consumer, the people who are buying the products that we have, um, they are changing because everything around them is changing in terms of how they consume information, 
how they engage with brands, how they buy, their attention span, et cetera. So we need to make sure that we're adapting um, our industry practices with what is actually happening with the consumer and finding a way to sort of meet that in the middle and understanding that what may have worked previously, we're not throwing it out the window, but just acknowledging that there are also other ways of operating and we need to reflect that on our teams um, and in, in the way that we sort of operate and make decisions. Yes. I was shaking my head there because it's, it's almost uh a ridiculous uh, concept, but we invest in technology, which of course is changing rapidly every day, mm -hmm. but venture capital as an industry itself has not innovated in decades. And that brings me to the, the last question that I have for you, you know, because we're in the state, you know, it is a dire state. We need to change um, drastically and we need to change dramatically. But what I get pushback on is, you know, Sarah, this, look at the results, right? The system is not broken. Mm -hmm. Why do we have to change it? What do you say to naysayers like this when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion being the driving force of what we need to do for our future? So I live in Florida and a couple of months ago, we had a hurricane. At least five days before the hurricane, uh, we were preparing for the hurricane. Everyone was going to the grocery store. They were buying their food. Um, you know, the day before the hurricane, we were, you know, putting up our storm shutters on our house. We brought everything inside. It was sunshine outside, right? There was no rain. There was no cloud in sight. Everything was, you know, it was perfect weather, but we knew a hurricane was coming. So we prepared accordingly for the hurricane. Whether the hurricane comes or not, we are prepared. We've got our water. We've got our food. We've got our snacks. The house is prepared. So then what happened? The hurricane hit. The people who were prepared, they were able to weather the storm, right? Now, unfortunately, there's some people that they weren't, you know, no matter what happened, they weren't ready. But we would have been called irresponsible if we know that this hurricane is coming and we don't do anything because it's sunshine outside, right? And we can't always look at what's happening today as a marker for what we need to do to weather market changes in the future um, because change is going to happen. That's inevitable. Change is going to happen. And if we don't do what we need to do to prepare our businesses, to prepare our teams today for these impending changes that come, we're going to find ourselves ill-equipped um, and unprepared. And the results could be devastating because the storm, the storms arrive. Yeah. Well, I would sum it up in this simple phrase. The train is leaving the station. Are you hopping on or are you not? Yes. And with that, Sonia, thank you so much for your time, your invaluable expertise and, you know, sharing all your, your insights into what is, as you and I believe to be really what will drive our future and what is important for all of us as leaders to stay true to, to keep making billion dollar moves. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.